To found one startup may be regarded as a misfortune. To found two smacks of carelessness. Everybody has advice for you, but it's always what they've seen work once. A lot of engineers, because they're not exposed to that feedback loop, they don't actually learn how to write good software. So I think fundamentally the problem is that most people are not writing distributed systems. They're writing websites. Software is eating the world. <laughs> Every industry is now a software industry, and there are real costs to failure. Tooling can change behavior, though. It can't change human nature, but it can encourage certain outcomes over others by gaming the incentives. Hello, and welcome to OllieCast, the podcast about observability. I'm Charity Majors, co-founder of Honeycomb.io. And I'm Rachel Chalmers with Marion Ventures. OllieCast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program that helps companies building cloud infrastructure, developer tools, and APIs take their products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or a speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O-11-Y-C-A-S-T. Paul, have you ever been on call? I've been on call a lot. When I started Circle, I was on call from the first customers until they finally took my pager away about three years later. Oh, wow. So, well, I started as, as primary on call, and then we, and then some iteration. And I mean, at the start, you, you know, we didn't have pager duty and we didn't have monitoring, which is the precursor to observability. Yeah. You might have heard of it. <laughs> But you know your your Twitter blows up because your your site is down and, and you're effectively on call regardless this of, has of never how you position. This never happened to me, so. <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> <laughs> so this might be a great time for you to introduce yourself. Yeah, so I, I'm Paul Bigger. I founded Circle CI, and uh, more recently I founded a company called Dark. You and I met back in the Circle CI days. What drew you to continuous integration in the first place? So there's a couple of different answers to that, but I remember being in a room in Paul Graham's house. In uh, 2010, when I was doing my combinator, was this at the party? <laughs> <laughs> Different party, and uh, and we were, we were spitballing that my Y combinator startup was, was stupid. And he's like, why, "Why don't you do compilers as a service?" Like, and I didn't even know what that meant. <laughs> but but a year, a year and a half later, after I've been working at Mozilla for a while, I realized that they have this big problem of like the automated testing thing and the uh, you know, release engineering, all all this sort of thing. And I was I was. Not exactly directly involved in it, but I was a downstream user of of their CI suite, basically. And I spent a year thinking, you know, if I was in charge, I would do this differently. And then when I decided to, it was time to do a startup. It was like this had been on my mind for a year. Tangentially, I kind of want to do a shout out to Mozilla as kind of the Bell Labs of of our industry. There's so much mm-hmm. amazing stuff and so many amazing people coming out of it, like Rust language, and it's yeah, for just sure. a generator of cool. It does feel like uh, release engineering is something that is very systematically underinvested in it. Pretty much every company over the size of fifty people that mm-hmm. I can think of, like this, is where faults get injected into our systems. This mm-hmm. is where chaos enters the system, and yet it's not seen as being prestigious work. It's seen as being very laborious. It's seen as being the crap work that you do when you have to, not something that actually affects your life more than any other piece of code you can probably write. Mm-hmm. Well, there's been this truism on the finance side forever that dev tools don't sell and dev tools don't grow into big venture That's why exits. We still have Capistrano. Mm. It, it's kind of crazy. I, I, I'm yeah. not even sure well, it's true anymore. But I, I kind of think it's true. I think up until recently, the, the secret to selling dev tools was selling infrastructure. And yeah. so the companies that yeah. made money were, were, with some exceptions, like GitHub, who just had all the users in the world. Yeah. But I, I think there's. Uh, Everybody tells you sell to ops. They mm-hmm. have budget. Yeah. They have yeah. checkbooks. Devs don't. Yeah, I mean, almost every dev tool that's been successful 
if it hasn't been selling infrastructure, it's been selling top-down to enterprise. Mm. That does seem to be changing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, there's there's more develop like the number of people in the industry who are the people who are coding in the industry is rising, and the tools are getting better. Rate. I remember mm-hmm. like when I left Facebook, and I and I realized that you can now cobble together the same exact build and deploy pipeline using all of these smaller startups, almost yeah. all of which have been founded in the last five years. Yeah, yeah. right. That's one thing I see happening is that a lot of the tools that are invented inside huge companies like Mozilla and, and Google and Facebook, and like, people oh, leave and, and they do these startups yeah. and suddenly you have this accessible tool chain. Because they don't know how to live without it. Mm. <laughs> exactly. You, the, you get accustomed to that lifestyle. Yeah. So the, the upside of that is, is obviously that like you have the tool that, that you can use. The downside is like you now need to know all these tools and the complexity in That's the industry true. has been exploding as That's a result. That's true. And there's, there are very few reliable narrators when it comes to how to plug them together and what mm-hmm. you actually need and what you don't. Well, you obviously need to use the tool that, that the person on stage is telling you to use. Well, of course. And then some other tools as well that, that integrate nicely. <laughs> You've talked a Great lot about <laughs> uh, accidental complexity, which I love as a phrase for describing, I mean, what's even happened since you founded Circle CI? There's mm-hmm. just like skyrocketing yeah. number of variables, number of abstraction layers that, yep. that people need to get their heads around now. Do you want to talk more about that? Yeah, so uh, I actually gave a bit of a talk about this at the Honeycomb meetup uh, a couple months back. But basically, uh, when we started CircleCI, people had had a problem, and that was that their Rails monoliths took a long time to test. And we our our product was we take it, we paralyze it. It's it, it, it's great. And then in between then and now, microservices happened, or microservices have been happening for for thirty years under different names and so on. Sure. But like people actually started doing microservices for the first time in history, I guess. And that completely changed how, how people test it. It completely changed what Circle CI's product is. But it also, I think, has has had a complete change on on the industry. Even how people think about their code bases and, and splitting them across multiple and their teams, like and the, their teams, the yeah. organizational structure. I mm-hmm. think it's had a huge and what they're responsible for. You used to be a sysadmin, you were like these hundred mm-hmm. servers are mine. No one may touch them. And now, what is it that you own? What is it that you're measured on? Mm-hmm. You know, how do you define success in that role? And th- there isn't a right answer to any of it. There's yeah. there's a couple it's of dizzying. opinions. Yeah, yeah. Everybody has advice for you, but it's always what they've seen work once. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> Confirmation bias. I did it this way, and I succeeded. Yeah. And therefore, the only way to yeah. succeed is to exactly. do it this way, mm. in spite of the ninety nine other people who did it that way and failed. Yeah. We have a very uh, fashion-oriented industry. We do. Like whoever, whoever writes the blog post that that gets the most likes is is the thing the one that, becomes that actually best made sense to the most people. Optimistically, <laughs> makes sense or appealed to this yeah. week's aesthetic of. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> true. Or is written by the famous person. Paul, to found one startup may be regarded as a misfortune. To found two smacks of carelessness. Where did you find the courage to start dark? Oh my god! So so this is my fourth startup. The, 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 fir- the first two failed tragically. Do you and, need and, help? And, is there something we can do? <laughs> so uh, apparently, on on the third one, you start to get okay at it. The the first one after you you make a successful one, they'll they'll give you money without really too much work. But I actually had this sort of thought. Like I, I spent a lot of the intervening time between when I left Circle and when I founded Dark, thinking, what will I do with my life? And I had a lot of ideas that were mostly not venture backed. That were mostly like small, low stress startups. That you could sort of have a have a nice chill life and but you know still have have meaning and and work and and that kind of thing, and that's not what I did because every time I started thinking about how would I build those, I yeah. 
realized that the tool that I wanted to build them with did not exist. This is how Parse got started too. Mm-hmm. You know, they were going to build mobile apps, and then they suddenly went, "Oh my gosh, everybody is doing all of this every time." Mm-hmm. And it became became Parse because yeah. there's so much bailiwire, there's so much just boilerplate that you mm-hmm. have to redo every time, and it's tiresome. Yeah. It's the uh, you, you you go to a hackathon for the weekend, and at the end you've got your webpack pipeline set up. Yes, exactly. So our, our our goal with Dark is very much like reduce that grunt work. And yeah. the reason I talk about accidental complexity so much is is our goal is basically just putting a circle around all the accidental complexity that we can find, and seeing if we can remove it in a sort of a holistic backend package. Tell us what Dark is. So so Dark is a tool to make coding a hundred times easier, and specifically to make backend services easier. So you would go to Dark, you would use our editor, you would use our infrastructure compiler, and you would use our language, the, the Dark language. And because you're using all this holistic stuff, you get a lot of stuff for free. Mm-hmm. And and that's that's basically what How we're doing. How do you know if it's working? That is a very, very good question. Interesting. So we're about six Months into the into the development of it, maybe. Oh, I meant, how do you know if your software is is working? Oh, how do you know if your software is working well? Types charity. <laughs> Burn. Uh, <laughs> the uh, one of the things that, that that we're making sure that we do at Dark is we're, we're not making any new things. We're we're just bringing them all together. Mm-hmm. So the things that people use today to make their software work, types, fuzzing, testing, continuous integration, like they're yeah. they're all part of it. And, um, I think about that as being the pre, like the basics, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm trying to gently nudge you into mentioning observability here. Oh, I see. <laughs> so, so actually, the, the dark is is really centered around the idea, or at least the the concept. I yeah. think of observability yeah. because you're always writing in production. Yeah. There's no it. separation of the code. Like th- there's no process to all take the code places, from your laptop into yes, production. All of those places are. It's so fraught with errors and mm-hmm. like things that get dropped, I, which is why I love it. The best software engineers I ever worked with at Facebook would spend half their day in their IDE writing code. Mm-hmm. They'd wait for it to eventually to make its way out to production, and mm-hmm. then they spend the other half of their day in Scuba or ODS just trying to understand the consequences and effects of what they had yep. shipped or what Absolutely. their intern had shipped. Because the understanding becomes the hard part, mm-hmm. much more than the development part. And w- 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 when you think about how hard it is to see the uh, to to replay a bug that a user had yes. on your site, yes. and you're going to have to replay it through like several microservices yes. and fetch it from different logging mechanisms, and inevitably you're going to be missing something anyway. Yeah, this yeah. to me points to why it's so necessary that we get comfortable with testing in production, which mm-hmm. is very much a, a dark friendly concept. Yeah, absolutely, I, I like, totally believe in it. You know, I I see teams flushing all of this time and energy just down the toilet, mm-hmm. trying to get staging in sync with production, which is actually in fact, impossible because mm-hmm. every single time you deploy an artifact using a deploy script to a production, that's a new thing, yep, right? Yep, yep. And you can capture and replay the past, mm-hmm. but you can't predict the future. Yep. So, like whatever you're doing on staging is is inevitably dumb. It's theater. It's, yeah. it's theater, and, yeah. and it makes you feel good about yourself, you know. And we have limited cycles, mm-hmm. and we are spending all of our time there, which means we're not spending it on hardening production, mm-hmm. building guardrails, making yep. it so that you can. Actually, see what's going on so that you can slice it nice in real time so that you can experiment. Mm-hmm. The guardrails are critical, though, Paul. How do you think about making sure that testing in production manages failure in a graceful way? So, I think feature flags is probably one of the best mm-hmm. tools that we have uh, for that. 
in Dark the way that you do it is is that once users are, are using a particular route, that code is immutable. You can't mm. you can't change that code. Mm-hmm. You can't edit it. That there isn't a, a process of like going into it and, and making a change. Right. But what you can do is you can take a section of it and say I'm going to flag that off, and you can you can run like multiple you know, traffic both ways and uh, and all that sort of thing. And basically. What we as people or as developers are trying to do is like get some personal certainty that the code that we write is, is going to work. And the best way to do that is, is to take real traffic, run it through the code that, that we've just written it in a, mm-hmm. in a safe way, validate that the answers are, are correct, whether we're doing some sort of like statistical analysis on it or yeah. just like eyeballing the, the, the results. When you put it that way, it's insane that we haven't done this sooner. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, that's my position too. Thank you, Jared. <laughs> it, it seems though like it would be very hard for legacy developers, developers with the older mindset to embrace this? You know, I feel like, yes, it is hard for them to embrace it, but like, I find that often I have a hard time convincing people how easy it can be. Mm-hmm. If they just do the thing that they want to do instead of the 10 or 20 steps before the thing that, you know, like this is a problem we have all the time too, where we're like, no, really, this is hard because you haven't been able to ask the right question. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's incredibly easy if you can just ask questions with high cardinality feels, and it sounds like it's very much the same thing for you guys. Yeah, I, I think it's very much a, a case of showing them a demo of what yeah. they can do on yeah. their on their own data. Exactly, and it's obviously that's that's not a it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. Yeah, but it's killer. Yeah, our, our industry has a has a history of of these amazing demos. Yeah, and you know the world changing as a, as a result of yeah. these demos and that's sort of what everyone what everyone really got to show them do. on their own data because yeah. then they know that you're not making it up. Mm-hmm. You're not cherry picking. Yeah. The other answer to that, and it's it's one I'm not particularly partial to, but the the industry grows at, at such an incredible rate. Like the the estimate for the number of programmers there are today is upwards of fifty million, and just there'll be new people along all the time. Yeah. And there's, there's still people writing writing COBOL. You know, some of them retired and, and some of them went away and, and some of them got bored. <laughs> COBOL's the, a great language. <laughs> You and your co-founder Ellen are publicly committed to diversity. While we're talking about all of these new coders coming in. Do you think Dark's culture affects what your code is like and vice versa? Yeah, ab- absolutely. So we are, are big believers in inclusion. It is, it is one of our core values. There's a couple of different reasons for this. And, and, and one of them, just from a, from a business perspective, is we want there to be a billion users, uh, a billion developers using, using Dark. And obviously, we're not going to get there if we don't open it up to, to way, way more people than, than are currently, currently coding today. I think as well in in the sort of the the current political climate, I think it's it's very difficult to not look around and see all the bad things that that are happening and see the 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 related situations in our industry and and how we've made it not a great place for for people of color for you know, just generally anyone who's underrepresented in our industry, not not white dudes basically. So I guess it's fair to say that that, that we have both a, a business reason and a values reason. For doing that, and it's it's sort of core to who we are. What's the advantage of getting a billion people using Dark, other than that you make a ridiculous amount of money? So when when Ellen and I started working together, I'd drawn up this sort of values questionnaire, and I had a lot of you know, potential co-founders fill it out, and basically making sure that we're on the same page. And the page was that we're building something big. I'm not going to all this effort if yeah. it's uh, in order to make a, a small side product. project yeah. or or whatever. Like we're we're really doing a thing that we believe in and a thing that that we believe needs to exist in the world and needs to exist for a lot more people. And it, it dovetails with with a, a ton of different things. Inclusion is is one of them. But yeah, the answer to that question is like, you know, why would you do it? It's like 
because we want it. That's, that's, that's what <laughs> like, we wanted uh, to do. Trudeau getting asked about all of the women on his cabinet and saying, mm. it's 2017. <laughs> right, right, exactly, yeah, yeah. We talked a little bit about being on call. A mm-hmm. lot of engineers seem to regard this as a curse, a punishment, a thing that is being imposed upon them, a thing that is to be avoided at all costs. What's your view? Well, I, I think I think one side of it is definitely that uh, people need their sleep, and sure. that being on call is is sort of damaging to our our sanity uh, at the at the core of it. Well, there's definitely the flip side that ops has a long and sordid history of masochism, mm-hmm. and we cannot ask people to join us there. Like, mm-hmm. I'm over thirty; I now want to sleep through the night too. Like mm-hmm. we just have to raise our standards for what we are willing to impose on people mm-hmm. and, and participate in. I loved the early Stripe story, where and who knows how, how true these apocryphal stories are, but where they uh, they set an alarm for every single error they they got, wake them up in the middle of the night if there if there was any error at all. And I guess when when you're dealing with payments, that that's the sort of situation uh-huh. that, that that you can put yourselves in because you don't want to drop them. But the idea of when when you keep it uh, clean, then the number of calls that you actually get yeah. is is relatively low. And yeah. the problem that I feel that people have when they're on call is that the costs of other people's code gets externalized to them mm-hmm. to the person who's on call mm-hmm. so if you i mean it's it's basically like how much does your company value you yeah. are they putting you on call because you know someone has to be on call but we've made a really really good job to make sure that yeah. that it's as good an experience as possible yeah our on call experience is um it's a rare week whenever anyone gets woken mm-hmm. up it's incredibly rare and we always post mortem it Mm-hmm. And do everything we can to make sure it doesn't happen again. Right. And I've been at many companies where that was not the case. Mm-hmm. It was just expected that you got woken up two or three times a night. Yeah. And it's really hard to dig yourself out of that hole once you get into it. Right. 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 You often, when when people interview, they ask you like, "What well, what's the on call going to be like?" Yeah. And you can tell just from how they ask it what oh, scars they have in the past. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely trauma. But it does come down to valuing people's time. Mm-hmm. I feel like every manager has a responsibility to. If not be on call themselves, it's not always possible. Mm-hmm. At least to fucking graph, you mm-hmm. know, know when your people are being woken up and, yep. and have it impact you and take it seriously and give yep. them the time and the permission and the space and support to pay down that technical debt so that it's not that bad. Yep. It's absolutely about taking responsibility. I think you talked about how resentful people get when they're the negative externality of somebody yeah. else's lazy code. Mm-hmm. The advantage of putting engineers on call is they become responsible for their own code and they appreciate the yes. consequences of yeah. that. But managers have to be respectful of, yeah. of people's time and of people's ability to affect the outcome. A lot of it- the real burnout comes from like not being able to, to make meaningful change. Mm-hmm. A lot of engineers, because they're not exposed to that feedback loop, they don't actually learn how to write good software. It's not that they're doing it on purpose. They just don't know because they've never had that feedback loop of, oh, this is what happens when I do that, when mm-hmm. I have this, you know, this way of degrading that's not particularly graceful when I don't shrink the critical path. Yeah, and I think you know, coming back to what we were talking about earlier about, about microservices and continuous deployment, one of the best things that we can do to reduce that critical path is lower the, the diff mm-hmm. of, of what we're shipping. Yeah. More smaller changes. Yeah, m- more like, certainty around what outcomes they're going to have. Exactly. I mean, this is just part of distributed systems, mm-hmm. right? Failure is happening all the time, some, and it has to be not that big of a deal. Yeah, no, no matter what, like someday some shark is going to like take a bite of an undersea cable and exactly, yeah, exactly, it's cut off Australia entirely. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what are developers missing about the future of software engineering and shipping quality code? I think our feedback loops have gotten terrible. Yeah, um, gotten terrible. 
Uh, I mean, maybe, maybe they've terrible. always been terrible, but I think I think they're getting better, honestly, and they've just always been bad. I th- I think back back in the in the good old days, and, <laughs> and by that I mean when I was in college and not not writing <laughs> actually valuable software. But I, I actually think back to like how we wrote software in college and, yeah. and how easy it was mm. relative to like what proper code bases are like today. But there's a feedback loop where where you'd write something and and you'd test it, and that yeah. would be. Yeah, you know, it's it's on your machine. It's not interacting. It's it's not a distributed system. I guess yeah. is is basically the the thing, and that hasn't really been brought back yeah. to distributed systems and, and tools like like Honeycomb are obviously doing this. Circle CI is you know is trying to do a little bit of it. Dark is going deep on it. But I remember there was there was a a blog post a couple of months ago by um, the Instagram engineering team, and they talked about how they were saving. Data that that happened in production. I think it might have been in the case of exceptions, so that you could have it on your machine. You typed a couple of commands, and you you could actually yeah. replicate it yourself. And and that that's that's the world that we need yeah. to be going to. Errors, exceptions, real you know, data, things going wrong, real services, right. real networks, real real traffic. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't agree more. And and real traffic is, is is an important one because it's very easy to easy to think that tests are reality. Right. Right. That was me rolling my eyes for. <laughs> <laughs> well, t- t- tests are reality if if you somehow live in a world where your system is entirely consistent, or all of your clients are robots. Yeah, that would work too. Yeah. Well, so, so so this is the problem. Like, if if you're doing a test, you you've written a couple of mocks or, or unit tests or maybe even integration tests, but they're not working at a at a scale where like you might you might have a partition in your thing yeah. or. You know, there just might be incredible or, load, or yeah, yeah, a absolutely. machine turns a, a hard drive is going wrong as it's being written. Yeah, and you, you need to test under under that world, or else you can't really exactly. You know. And it's like it, we in distributed systems, we just have this infinitely long tail of things that almost never happen. So mm-hmm. Once they do, mm-hmm. and you can't predict and test for all of them, just like you can't predict and monitor for all of them. And mm-hmm. You shouldn't try. You should be instrumenting your system at a level of abstraction that empowers you to ask new questions. Well, so I think fundamentally the problem is that most people are not writing distributed systems. They're writing websites, right? Which or w- web applications, which but just I would, happen I would, to be distributed there's systems. There's a great talk. I forget the name of the person who wrote it, but on why web programming is the original distributed system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it is. Yeah, of course. We just it aren't is. used yeah, to yeah, yeah. thinking of it and, right. and treating it. That Clients way. are. That's why it has a bad reputation in terms mm-hmm. of code quality. But it does feel like there's a, a intellectual. Chasm that we have to cross between you know I'm, I'm writing this to run on my web server versus I'm writing all of these things to interact with one another yeah. on other people's clouds mm-hmm. in real time and if three of them go down the other twelve will take up the slack and our solution so far has just been we're just not going to do it and say we did mm-hmm. so if you're a young engineer coming out of Trinity's CS department today how do you prepare yourself for this very different world from the one we grew up in. I think the obvious one is is that you want to take the distributed systems elective, <laughs> a, uh, which I did not do, and I've, I've, I've regretted for decades since. I mean, it really depends on on what you're trying to do. As an engineer, like, are are you trying to be in the opsy side of things and and you know making sure that that systems stay up, or are you going to be more on the product engineering side because you can't know everything? And I, I would argue though that the fundamentals of operations are no longer optional. I think that understanding what Roughly, what happens to your code after you hit publish? Even if you're a mobile apps mm-hmm. engineer, you need to understand the fundamentals of what's going to happen when things start going south. I'm not sure I agree. Really? I, I mean, I, I think that optimistically, everyone would know everything. I would not say that at all. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that um, if you can't model in your head mm-hmm. roughly how failure works, mm-hmm. your stuff is not going to be very good. 
You're you're one hundred percent right. Now you could say, well, stuff doesn't all need to be good, and I would right. say that's also true. Most things fail, and it's usually not because your code wasn't pretty enough. I, I think back to to sort of younger years when when people talked about, oh, you don't know what HTTP looks like, what what TCP looks like, oh, you don't know all seven levels of the. OSI layer, or, or, yeah. OSI layer, yeah. and, and that that sort of thing. And you know, when people actually talked at you know about this is a level four and this is a level three and you know, all yeah, that. Yeah, but shit. I think that failure, like I'm not talking about any particular type of failure, mm-hmm. just the act of making code reach humans mm-hmm. and then sometimes not work. Yeah, that seems like a pretty fundamental thing. The rewards for making it reach the humans are far far higher than the the cost of it occasionally going down. Like you get rewarded for building the thing, and probably someone else takes the slack when it goes down, or like we 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 absolve well, it and we're it free that retro. This is changing. I think the um the incentives around uh, building software mean that it may not ever change. Interesting. That, so I, I'm thinking specifically, you know, when when PHP came out, and everyone was saying, "Oh, these PHP developers, they they don't have any idea what they're doing." Yet they're building the entire internet. They're they're building Wikipedia, they're building Facebook, and 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 so on. Facebook's an interesting example, though, because what they've done with Hack is just reinterpret PHP so that it works in a, a really modern distributed system. It's kind of a genius. Seven years later. <laughs> I mean, like, how far were, were were they in? Like, how successful were they by the time that they actually started doing that? If you ask them. <laughs> yeah. So, so they started HPHP in two thousand and nine, maybe. Mm-hmm. And what Facebook was four years old then? Not sure my not sure my history. And they already had a hundred, couple of hundred million users. Like, that's that's so certainly the scale that they started to rewrite it. To, so, some of this is obviously aspirational. Mm-hmm. Absolutely agree, but I think there's value in articulating what we aspire to as an mm-hmm. industry. Yeah, yeah. Because we can't just tell people, eh, quality doesn't matter. Yeah. Go, go forth. Because software is eating the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Every industry is now a software industry, and there are real costs to failure in industries, medical industry, the yeah. building industries. You know? TSB migration that went south. I mean, Oof. it's not just pretty websites. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like I hear. More and more grumblings about our need to raise our standards as an industry to be more like engineers. So, which I, is different than developers. You can be a code monkey and mm-hmm. sling code, and there are more and more and more of those. I don't mean that in a derogatory mm-hmm. way, but there's also software engineering, which I think should be more rigorous and should absolutely care about the quality. And and certainly the civil and mechanical engineers would love that because they get a bit miffed when you talk about software a little engineering. Bit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I think I have the same goal as you, which is like software works better and, and fails less, and and we we get woken up in the night less. My belief of of how we get there is is not that we try to affect a change in in humans, which I think people have been doing for a long time, but rather that we build better tooling. I think I agree with you completely. Yeah. I I don't think we can change how people think about the world or the fact that no. there's someone today who wants to build a website who's learning JavaScript. Which we, will take off we, and will yes. absolutely not know anything about the system. Yes. But if they have better tooling, if they built on Kubernetes because that's the thing that they were told to build on and it becomes the default, then they've got a more reliable system than if they were hacking it to themselves. Tooling can change behavior, though. It, can, yes. it can't change human nature, but it mm-hmm. can encourage certain outcomes over yes. others by gaming the incentives. Mm-hmm. For example, if you can't tell whether what you've built is working or not, mm-hmm. you will build it differently than if you can. Mm-hmm. And that comes back to the question of responsibility and ownership. You know, if you can, if you have agency over what your code does in production, if you can see mm-hmm. and, and affect that, 
then I think you feel a lot more affinity for it and oh, for, for the sure. users. Nobody is going to want to put energy into caring about something that they cannot affect or mm-hmm. change. I mean, that's that's just wasted energy. Mm-hmm. What are vendors and service providers missing about the future of software engineering? I think there's a habit of vendors to to think about the world as as their place in it and to think a lot about the competitive dynamics of the marketplace and how to make themselves more important than the other people in in the space. And I think what they're what they're missing is that fundamentally a better experience for users is the yeah. only thing that that actually matters. Yeah. Well, I think there's a huge distortion coming in from the finance side, you know, mm-hmm. particularly from the very large school of venture capital which wants to create natural monopolies and mm-hmm. it's in some ways misaligned with what engineers are trying to do you know good engineers are trying to build open platforms that enable mm-hmm. people and that kind of investment is trying to create closed platforms that take advantages of inequalities in the market yeah so i get very frustrated with this mismatch between sort of the two biggest constituencies in venture-backed software, the entrepreneurs and and some of, not all, but some of the investment community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think I think it's inherent and I, I think it's um it's definitely part of the of the venture backed world, although you, you also see a ton of uh, bootstrapped people who are, who are having the same mentality and, and you know we are the center of the world and everyone else will, will conform to who we are. We all read the same blog posts. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I don't actually have any any solution to it? Unfortunately, I wasn't wasn't coming in with a big principle here. <laughs> we could overthrow capitalism, maybe tear it all down. Just I, I think I think that's probably the the closest thing to to achieving this. All right, I'll put it on my action items. <laughs> I'll get my red flag. Awesome. Thanks for coming. Thanks so much. Thank you. Well, that's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic or speaker, find us on Twitter at OllieCast, O eleven Y Cast. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. Have a lovely day.